You're listening to TIP. That's because money has been relatively cheap. Inventory has been relatively low. So there's just not a lot of stuff to buy. And demographics are really strong. There's just a lot of millennials who are reaching their peak family formation years. And that's who primarily buys houses and that's who enters the housing market. You see all of those things and two of them in the housing market are still there. In this week's episode, I take a deep dive into the data behind the real estate market with David Meyer. David Meyer is the VP of Data and Analytics at Bigger Pockets, host of the On the Market podcast, and a successful real estate investor for over 12 years. If you've been a listener of the show for a while, you know that I love data. We've had data scientist turned real estate investor Neil Bawa on the show three times to talk all about data and his data driven approach. And he'll actually be coming back for a fourth time in the next few weeks. Using data to drive your decision making has just always made a lot of sense to me. And I think it's allowed me to make better decisions in real estate and in life. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have David Meyer. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into some of the detailed data that we're going to talk about today, tell us a bit about your real estate portfolio and your journey. You're the VP of Data Analytics at Bigger Pockets, but you also own a few multi-unit properties and have owned some single-family properties in Denver as well. So take us through your experiences as a real estate investor. So I graduated from college in 2009 and moved to Denver. And it was a very tough job market then and started waiting tables. And on the side, I was just looking for ways to bring in extra money. And a friend of mine at the time bought a rental property with his girlfriend and they were making all this money. And I just thought, man, this is a really compelling idea. And looked into it and didn't really have any money at the time, but was able to find three partners to get in on my first deal. This was back in 2010. And we were able to buy a fourplex in Denver. And I didn't really have any money. I took out a secondary loan to put down on my as my fourth of the down payment. And I did all of the property management for free in exchange to build additional equity in the property. And I just loved it. And so I kept doing it pretty slowly in the beginning because I didn't have a lot of money with which to invest. At the same time, I was sort of building a career in software and in data analytics. And in 2015, I was like, man, I really love real estate investing, really love software and looked for a job. I just like Googled real estate software and found Bigger Pockets. I had never used the website before. And luckily, it was about a mile away from my house, the place I was house hacking at the time, and got a job and have been working there ever since. I still have a small portfolio in Denver, but in 2020, I moved to Europe 
And so now I primarily invest passively in syndications and don't buy a lot of individual properties. I actually haven't bought any individual properties since I've moved to Europe. But given what's going on in the market, I am starting to look again right now. No investing in properties in Europe? No, you know, I looked in Amsterdam where I live and it's just very expensive and it's just difficult to do as an expat. There are places in Europe where it is a little bit more attractive, like Portugal, for example, and Belgium, I think are attractive. But honestly, man, I just didn't want to learn the laws of every individual country. There's just so much. You have to translate everything to English. It's really hard. I, I know and like the US housing market and figure I'll just stick with what I know. Are you country hopping or are you staying in, in mostly one place? No, we live uh, in the Netherlands and stay there. My fiance was working for a company in Denver that got bought by Booking.com. And they are a Dutch company. And so they transferred her over there. Bigger Pockets was kind enough to let me move. With that's sort of our home base. Luckily, we do get to travel a lot, but uh, Amsterdam is a, is our home now. So that first property you bought in Denver back 2010, if you think about what that's worth today, it's probably gone up significantly in value. I mean, even just properties in the last couple of years in Denver have gone up a lot. So I'm curious, you don't still own that property to this day. You didn't hold it for that long, did you? No, I sold it in 2018. I had bought out some partners along the way there and sold it in 2018 for just about triple what I bought it for. Anyone who invests in Denver now will be shocked and a little jealous to know we bought a fourplex for just a, for about 450 grand right in a very good neighborhood in Denver. Now those are trading in the 1.2, 1.5 million range. But no, I um, have 1031 exchanged that into some other properties originally into other single families, into one short-term rental. And then I sold one of those and actually just did a Denver statutory trust, if you're familiar with those. It's basically anyone listening, it's basically a way to invest in passive syndications with 1031 money. It's a unique sort of investment vehicle. But that really, it did so well. It really launched my investing career and gave me a lot of capital with which to explore different investing strategies and opportunities. Are you doing most of your passive multifamily syndication investing through others that have done it with bigger pockets, maybe Brandon Turner or, or somebody along those lines? It's not branded. I do talk to Brandon, but I haven't invested with him yet. But it is pretty well known people for the most part. I have done one or two smaller ones that are more regional, I would say, but mostly for experienced operators. And, you know, for me, it's syndications are obviously you do need to do your due diligence. And for me, that the experience of the operator is probably the most important one. I'm not typically investing with people who are relatively new to it, although I know there are probably new people who are very good at it already. Pretty recently, back in the middle of July, you published an article on Bigger Pockets that you titled The Housing Market Correction Has Begun. Coming from someone who studies data as much as you, which I'm excited to have that conversation because a lot of people will go on podcasts, social media, and they'll kind of spew their predictions and, and what they think is going to happen, but they don't necessarily, like if you drill into it, they don't really have any data or reason other than just like a gut feeling. Somebody who actually studies the data behind what's going on, I'm interested to chat about that. Given that you study it so much, we'd be probably pretty wise to listen to you. 
what are you seeing in the data that's making you confident that the market has started to correct? And when you say correction, how do you define that? I should start all this by saying I also don't know what will happen, but I do think I have an at least informed opinion here. I believe that when you look over the last 15 years, uh, basically since the Great Recession, there was a lot of factors and economic variables that were contributing to rapid price appreciation in the United States. And of course, over the last two years, we've seen it really just sort of turbocharged, but it was going up at a pretty good clip even before then. And that's because money has been relatively cheap. Inventory has been relatively low. So there's just not a lot of stuff to buy. And demographics are really strong. There's just a lot of millennials who are reaching their peak family formation years. And that's who primarily buys houses. And that's who enters the housing market. You see all of those things. And two of them in the housing market are still there. Millennials still want to buy homes. That's probably not really going to change very dramatically. Whether they can afford to is a different question, but they want to. And inventory, although it's going up a lot, is still relatively low in a historical context, which puts upward pressure on housing prices. The thing that's really changed is affordability. Interest rates have been going up and with prices going up as much as they are, we're at a point where affordability for houses is at a near 40-year low. And so that's just going to reduce demand. The way I see it is that we no longer have, for the last two years, every macroeconomic factor was like pointing in one direction, which was housing prices were going up. Now, one major factor has reversed, but there's still a lot of support for the housing market in a lot of the fundamentals. I think what's happening is with this declining affordability, we are seeing a lot of demand get sucked out of the market. And that's going to slow down the market very considerably. But there's really, in my mind, not much of a risk that we are going to see the market, at least on a national scale, decline more than, let's say, 10%. And that's a rough estimate. I think when you say what's a crash, what's a bubble, I think the best example is in the, in the stock market, they say if it goes down 20% off their peak, that's a bear market. I don't think there's any risk of that happening in the housing market. I shouldn't say any risk, but there's a very, very low risk of that happening in the housing market. And instead, I believe because of these factors, we're going to see housing come off its peak. I do think it's going to decline on a national scale, but it's going to be very regional. Uh, and some markets are going to see continued growth, I believe, and some are going to see declines that might approach or even slightly exceed 10%. I've heard a lot of articles and studies say that millennials not only can't afford homes, but they don't want to buy homes anymore. So I'm curious, what data points, what kind of research have you done that is showing that millennials actually want to buy homes? I look at a bunch of different variables. I think the NAR, they put out some like buyer and seller profiles every year, which is pretty interesting. I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I think a lot of the idea that millennials don't want homes is that millennials haven't been able to afford homes. And so when you do look at home ownership rates for millennials, it is it has traditionally been lower than their, you know, like generational peers. Um, so if you looked at like Gen X or baby boomers at this point in their life, they would own more. But I don't know. And I haven't seen really anything that says it's like home millennials like, I don't want to buy a home. It's that a lot of us. I don't know how old you are, Robert, but for my peers who graduated college in the late 2000s-ish, it was a 
really terrible job market and it was a tough time to start saving money. And I think people, a lot of millennials generationally were behind financially. And, and that explains more of the lag in homeownership. But we're seeing now in terms of family formation data, it's really catching up. And people want, like when they start a family, they want to buy a home. And so the demand has been really led by millennials for the last couple of years. If you look at most of the data sets that, that track this kind of stuff. When you're doing your data analysis, why don't you put much weight on price drops? I think it's important. It's a major indicator. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it's really about what home prices sell for, not what, they're, what the seller is asking for. And a price drop is really a reflection of whether or not the seller is in tune with the market. And at a time when the market is in transition, like it is right now, Sellers are going to be optimistic and think, oh man, you know, three months ago I could have gotten this and maybe someone will buy it. And so they'll put it at that number. But the market has turned and people aren't just going to pay anything that you put on, anything you listed for at this point. I think we're seeing that in the price drop numbers that sellers are being a little bit overambitious. And that does reflect that the market is cooling. But at the end of the day, to me, what really matters is that housing prices year over year are still up. And that shows that that's, there's not like a crash happening right now, despite there being some lead indicators that show that the market is softening. Yeah, this made so much sense when I read this or, or heard you say this. It made so much sense to me because for me, when I, I was actually just sold one of my rental properties and my agent said, if you want to sell it really, really fast, sell it at 100. If you want to sell it for fully what I think it's worth, sell it for like 110. But if you really want to push it, I think we might be able to get 120. In this case, we were like, okay, let's just list it for 120, see if we get anything. And if we don't, we'll just drop it down to what it's probably really worth at 110. And we listed it at 120 and you know, we got an offer and, and it sold. But if we hadn't, we would have just dropped it to 110. And I don't, like you said, that wouldn't have been an indication of what, really what the market is doing or saying. Like it's not that the market's declining. It's just that we were aggressive on our pricing and we just had to drop it to really more in line with what is really worth. Totally. And I think people got used to, I talked to on, our, on my podcast, a lot of people who flip a lot of houses, for example, they've just been gotten used to being able to just throw any number up there and people have been willing to pay for it for the last couple of years. And it seems like that is changing. I don't flip houses. This is just from what I hear from my friends. This that they can't just throw up any number, but they're still hitting their margins that they would expect in a normal year. It's not like they're selling at a loss all of a sudden. The, the margins are still good. The profit is still out there. It's just not the carnival it's been for them for the last two years anymore. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. 
Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Talk to us a bit about how inventory shortages could get even worse as interest rates rise and homeowners feel locked into their current property. I think this is going to be one of the most interesting things to watch in terms of real estate data over the next few years, because inventory has been trending down for decades. And inventory, just for anyone listening, is basically the number of properties available for sale at any given time. So usually it's the last day of the month. That has been trending down and basic supply and demand indicates that if inventory is low, then that's going to put upward pressure on housing prices. And there is this theory that it's even though it's super low right now, it might get worse because interest rates have been so low that people aren't going to sell. And if you were a homeowner and you locked in a 3% interest rate for 30 years, It's not necessarily very attractive to sell that home, move to another property that's probably significantly more expensive at a higher interest rate. And to basically to trade up right now is incredibly expensive for people who have bought over the last two or three years. And so there is this theory that people won't list their properties. I think there's some weight to it. I don't think it's going to be as dramatic as some people believe because ultimately for most home buyers, Selling and buying a house is more of an emotional decision. It's more of a circumstantial decision and less of an economic decision. 
But for some people who don't need to sell, they won't. And for investors, I think they're less likely to sell if there's less attractive options out there. And just anecdotally, there, there is some information recently that's showing this might be true. Like over the last couple of weeks, the number of new listings, so the, the amount of people who listed their properties for sale for the first time has started to decline again. And so this is, I think there's a real chance that inventory doesn't really rebound to pre-pandemic levels in the near future, at least on a national level. I think it's too early to make that call, but that's, it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch in terms of the dynamics of the housing market. I fit into this exactly. This is literally happening to me and, and not so much from the selling side, but still for the rental market is that my plan was, I live in a house hack. My plan was to, and I'm using an FHA. So my plan was after I lived here for a year, was refinance into conventional if I could, and then use an FHA again to buy my next house hack. But now with interest rates doing what they're doing, if I were to just lose my rate and go to current market rates and nothing else changed, my monthly payment on this house hack would go up like $900 to $1,000 a month. My interest rate is 2.25% on a 30-year fix. Awesome. When I went to the title company to close, she said it was the lowest interest rate she's ever seen. And I so, never heard that. Yeah, it's awesome. And I didn't buy it down, no points, nothing. That was just the, just the actual rate. But so now like my property is not going to go on the market for rent. So that's like you said, it, it's not on the selling side. So it's not necessarily inventory of sales, but it's inventory of rental markets. So that's an impact as well. And, and now I'm not a buyer to buy another property because kind of stuck a little bit in this one. So I'm trying to try to figure that out. So when I read, when I was reading this and, and heard you talk about this, it was definitely something that anecdotally I feel is true for sure. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. You know, we study a lot of data, but so much of it is psychological to see people, even if it's not a rational decision, they see that interest rate and they don't want to pay more. And sometimes it is a rational decision. Sometimes it's more emotional, but it'll be uh, that this is one of the most important things. I actually was just writing another article that, like, really to me, inventory levels are like the X factor in the housing market over the next few years. Like We know sort of what's happening with a lot of the other trends, but whether or not inventory gets back to pre-pandemic levels will make a big impact on what happens with housing prices. I recently wrote a book called The Everything Guide to House Hacking, which people can pick up at everythinghousehacking.com. House hacking is pretty near and dear to my heart personally. I'm house hacking right now. So I want to talk about this article that you wrote that is the 98 best markets for house hacking. When I saw it, I was pretty intrigued. And now I want to test you. What, what are every single one of those 98 best markets? No, I'm, I'm just well, kidding. I actually... I should have titled this something different because it was really... I just looked at the 100 biggest markets and measured how good they were at house hacking. And then I put a bad title on it. Well, hey, it gets people to click, right? It's more interesting maybe than 100. So, But before we get into the data that makes what makes for a good house hacking market, give us a quick overview of how you define house hacking. I think house hacking is basically just an owner-occupied real estate investment. And you can traditionally do that in two ways. You can either buy a small multifamily, live in one unit and rent out the rest, or you could buy a single family home and rent by the room. So find roommates. And I'll just say, I, I also love house hacking. I did it for several years. I think it's a no-brainer way to get into real estate investing. And that's honestly why I wrote this article is that 
With declining affordability in the housing market, you see a lot of headlines about like, should I rent or should I buy? That's a good question. But there's always option three. Exactly. I was just like, there's a third option. And house hacking, it's, oh, it's like almost always the best option. That's why I wrote this article because I was kind of like, it's this false dichotomy to say like, you can do one or the other. There is like a really good middle ground that is a very safe investment and like really beneficial to almost anyone's financial position. I don't know. Do you know who Ramit Sethi is? Yeah, yeah. I love a lot of what he says. I hate a lot of what he says. I'm like, like I don't. He's a perfect example of like you can love some of the things some people do and and not uh, for everything. And so he talks a lot, a lot, a lot on Twitter and social media in general about this like rent versus buy debate. And I almost every time I see it, I comment like, "There's a third option: house hacking." Like every single time. And uh, he hasn't gotten back to me yet. But if he ever does, I, I hope he sees it at least. What's his position on rent versus buy? His position is that it almost always makes sense to rent for most people. And he's a renter. Um, He says that a lot of his wealthy friends rent. Uh, He says he has nothing against buying a house. Like, if you want to buy a house, that's fine. Like, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't, but just realize that from a financial perspective, it's not an investment. It's not like the best optimal financial choice for most people. It's an emotional one and it's you need a backyard, you need bedrooms and space and these types of things for your family. And and you're doing it from that perspective. You're not doing it from a financial perspective. And I think in, in many cases, he's right. And in some cases, he's not. But the point is that for me, and like you said, is that I think he forgets that there's a third option. Definitely. And I think that's generally true. I listened to this other podcast recently, and the guest was saying, I forget his name, that like buying a home is sort of... It's not a bad financial decision. It's just like you said, it's not the optimal financial position. And I think that confuses people too who want to buy a home and they're like, oh, I'm going to lose money. It's like not like you're necessarily losing money. It's like if you took the money and invested it into a different type of asset, you might make more money. But if you want a home and you want to buy one and that's important to you, it's not like you're, you're throwing money away in most cases. Sometimes you are. But in most cases, it's sort of like a forced savings account. It's just not going to make you as much as investing in rental properties or putting it in the stock market or something like that. The problem with the rent buy kind of debate that I see in the math does a lot of times work out to be the rent in the rent's favor. But like you said, it's dependent on you investing that money in something else. And I think that is a huge flaw in that kind of debate. Because if you adjust that number at all of what people take from that they would have put for down payment on buying something and instead investing that and renting instead, I just don't think most people will do that. That's the thing. Like I think if you adjust that down a little bit, renting doesn't necessarily always become better. So I think you're making not you specifically, but people that are making that argument for renting are making a big assumption about people's psychology. And I, I just don't think that's always true. I totally agree. So I in this on this article, there's a there's a calculator you can actually download for free attached to it that basically lets you see house hack, rent, traditional home purchase. And to do this calculation properly, you need to input a rate of return like you're talking about. It's like, what is the rate of return on that you would generate if you took the money from a down payment, for example, and put it in the stock market? And at first I was like, oh, I'll put it, I'll set the default at like eight or nine percent, because that's like the, you know, the standard S P index fund number that you hear. 
And I was like, no way. There's just like, there's no way that people have the discipline. I don't have that discipline to like put every dollar that I don't invest into the stock market and invest it at optimal returns. And so I put it at like three or 4% because that, that seemed like more realistic. But for some people, that number might be zero. You know, like if they're not going to take that money and invest it, then that totally changes the, the math like very dramatically. And probably means that if that you should buy a house because it's that forced savings account that will get you to invest at least a little bit. It's not going to make you the same nine, ten percent, but it will at least improve your financial position over time. We are definitely completely aligned and in, in, in the same boat on, on that one. Getting back to the markets for house hacking, what data were you looking at to determine if a market was one of the best for house hacking? Are you looking at rental rates versus property values so you can kind of get that price to value or price to rent ratio kind of in line with maybe more affordability? Like what are you, what are you looking at there? Pretty much. So, because there's so many variables in house hacking, I sort of had to make a lot of assumptions. And I that's why I made the calculator by the way. So, if you have want to change my assumptions, you can just go do that. But basically, I did exactly what you said. I look at the median rent and the median purchase price for just a regular house. So it's it's for any residential property, which could be anything from one unit to four units. And I also made some assumptions like what your rent would be if you were renting would be the median. And that if you bought a duplex, that your income as a house hacker would be equal to the median rent too. So there's just a lot of assumptions there. But I think my goal is if you hold those assumptions true, they might not be the best assumptions, but as long as you hold them true across all of the markets, then it shows you directionally which markets are better and which markets are worse for house hacking. I'm sure there's nuance there, but I think that's a pretty good way to at least get a sense of like the trends here. And I think that was pretty accurate. You could see the trends pretty clearly about which markets are are better for house hacking and which ones are probably better to rent in. Give us some examples. What were some of the most notable cities from your research, both good and bad? What were some of the best cities and what were some of the worst? I think some of the, generally speaking, more affordable markets are better for house hacking. I don't think that's super surprising, but just to give like a shout out to one that I was surprised by. Is usually you see big cities aren't as uh, good for in- investment, like huge cities, uh, like San Francisco or New York. But Chicago was one of our biggest, best cities for house hacking. And it's because prices in terms of purchase prices haven't gone up there all that much over the last couple of years compared to the rest of the country, but rent has. Um, it's a pretty good place. Philadelphia is also really popular. Uh, Milwaukee and even Miami was one that I was kind of surprised by, just because I think rent is so high in Miami. And Miami is one of those markets where it's really polarized. There's like ultra ultra luxury, but a lot of Miami Dade County is more afford. There is more affordable areas that still have high rent, so that that's a, a good option. On the other end, like the markets that aren't great are the ones that you've probably heard are in a bubble, <laughs> like Boise, Reno. Austin are all some of the ones where it's just that the price of housing has gotten so crazy there. Even with house hacking, it might not make sense because it's just the prices are so out of whack with the rest of the economy in those local markets. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Outside of just the house hacking strategy and just thinking about real estate in general, whether it be rental properties, maybe even flipping or, or multifamily syndications, what is your data showing for the best general real estate markets or the best for long-term rentals? I think it depends. Like Personally, I look for markets that have appreciation upside and a decent cash flow. 
some people just want pure cash flow. And if you're looking at that, I actually just, I think it's coming out today or tomorrow, I wrote an article about the best places to find cash flow. But generally speaking, they're uh, on the East Coast. I did the top 10 markets and not a single one of them was west of the Mississippi, which was kind of interesting. You see the Midwest, upstate uh, New York is pretty popular and the Sunbelt for cash flowing markets. And then appreciation markets, I think it's really hard to tell that right now. For years, I really was interested in picking those, but things have gotten so crazy in some of these markets, it's really hard to predict. But I still think generally speaking, Texas, Florida, Tennessee, the Sunbelt, Southeast are going to be really popular. So those are kind of the markets I think are the best. I've invested in Texas recently, in Virginia, in Alabama. You know, I have a guy, a friend on my show who's all about Northwest Arkansas. So I think these markets are still affordable. People are moving there. There's strong migration there. That bodes well for the 5, 10, 20-year timeline. Back in early July, you did an episode on your podcast called Get Rich in the Recession. And there was a subsequent blog article titled What to Invest in During a Recession. So how should investors be preparing for a recession and how can we benefit from the recession? I think people generally are rightfully fearful about a recession, but in typical years in a recession, it is not super impactful on housing. And I'll say that this is probably, I don't know if you'd call this a typical recession because it's really GDP is going down because of inflation, not because people aren't spending their money. Uh, I think that housing prices, like I said, are probably going to go down a bit, but not dramatically. But I don't really see rent going down. Um, And that actually means that cash flow prospects across the country will probably get better. Because as you were saying before, a good way to estimate cash flow is the the rent to price ratio. And that means if if rent continues, stays strong, and maybe even goes up over the next few years, even in a recession, then and housing prices go down, that improves cash flow prospects. I believe that means that buying opportunities are going to be better over the next couple of months. And it's true that interest rates are higher, but from everything I hear from my friends who are really active in buying single families and multifamilies, like there's just way better opportunity to negotiate right now with sellers. And I think like that's the best thing for people to keep in mind is like, yes, it's a recession, but and that creates fear, but that creates fear among people who are selling their property too, and they might be willing to negotiate with you, uh, and you might be able to find better properties. That being said, like personally, I don't flip houses, but I w- I would be wary about flipping houses in this type of market because I think there is a good chance that flipping houses is great if you're in a consistent bull market, and we are not in a consistent bull market. I think there is a lot of market and timing risk with flipping right now. And there's an enormous amount of labor and material risk. Like just people, it's hard to find products to work with. I would stay away from that. And I also just, this is just a personal note. I think the short-term rental market is, I don't want to say it's going to crash. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think it's really interesting time for the short-term rental market because when a recession comes, people travel less. And we've seen just this massive influx of short-term rentals over the last couple of years. And so we're seeing conditions where there is continually increasing supply and potentially decreasing demand. And so I think there is probably going to be a drawback in prices that is stronger in like vacation rental hotspots. Personally, I wouldn't be 
you can look at it two ways. You could either say you're going to stay away from that. Or like for me, I, I own a short-term rental. I'm interested in buying more. Like I think those markets might have a discount in the next couple of months um, and might uh, present a good opportunity. That's sort of how I'm looking at, at the next couple of months, at least. Yeah, I think the short-term rental debate is really interesting. I hear people come on the podcast and they say they're short-term rental investors. Obviously, they're a little bit biased, but they don't think that there's any concern for short-term rentals. And then Others don't necessarily feel the same way, maybe such as yourself. I don't necessarily kind of see it that way. I'm not a, I'm not personally a huge fan of the short-term rental investing strategy as a whole. I just don't personally like staying in Airbnbs all that much myself. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to for me to invest in it if I don't don't really love it myself. So, I'm really interested to see there's a lot of money that's going into Airbnb and short-term rentals, which I think is interesting. There's Funds that are multi hundred millions, if not billions of dollars, that are going into the short term rental space. So that's really interesting. Like you said, it's going to be a really interesting time for short term rentals. And I'm excited to watch it play out, especially with no dog in the fight, really. I have one and I honestly bought it mostly so that I could use it sometimes. And I, like, I was just like, oh, if it, uh, if it cash flows, great. As long as I break even, I'll be pretty happy. And it's actually worked out great at cash flows and has appreciated a lot. But I think there's two risks. I'll just say like one is there's a lot of competition. And I think if you're going to be in the short-term rental game, you need to go to the higher end. Like if your property doesn't stand out and is not like sort of a a fantastic place to stay, you're going to be in trouble because there's a lot of just garbage coming on and like there's just going to be oversaturation. But I also think like you see in Dallas recently, they just banned short-term rentals. And I think there's going to be a wave of legislation over the next few years that is going to be really tough on the short-term rental industry. And I think that's the even bigger risk than the supply and demand dynamics. I mean, we saw in Atlanta, I don't remember all these exact specifics, but it was something along the lines of like, you'd only own one of them or maybe two of them in, in the area. And they just came down hard on it. And then I know uh, a good friend of mine lives in Virginia Beach. He had some in Virginia Beach. They had some issues there, and then somewhere I have some family down in North Carolina, South Carolina area. They had some issues there as well. And then actually, I heard some stuff going on in Joshua Tree as well. So some people that got hurt there as well. Yeah, I mean the the legislation piece outside of just the economics is an issue as well for sure. I bought mine specifically in an unincorporated town <laughs> because I just didn't want to deal with it. But a lot of people also just invest only where there are already strong regulation because then you kind of know what's coming. If you can make those numbers work in one of those markets, that would make me feel a little bit more comfortable because it also limits your competition if you can get into them. Yeah, that would be my exact approach as well. Is if you're going into a city or state that already has pretty well-defined short-term rental laws, the chance of them changing abruptly, I think is significantly lower than if there's no laws or very little laws or, or regulation already. But outside of just real estate, Given all the data analysis and research you've done, what other assets are you investing in? What do you think might do well during a recession? And how is that changing right now, given the current environment that we're in? I still invest in a very boring way in the stock market. I just dollar cost average into index funds, basically. And I would say that about 25% of my portfolio overall is in the stock market and the rest is in real estate. I buy crypto a little bit just for fun, but a very, very little bit amount. But the thing I'm actually getting, um, I haven't pulled the trigger yet, but I'm interested in is within real estate, there's so, you know, people talk about diversification across asset classes, and I'm a pretty firm believer in that. But I also think like in real estate, I try to diversify. 
because I have now that I mostly invest passively, you can diversify across markets, which is really nice uh, in different regions of the country. You can diversify between... I only invest in residential currently, but you can, if you want to get into office or industrial um, or storage. But I'm also, I'm looking into getting into note investing. I don't know if you, you do this at all, but the returns look really good, especially as interest rates go up. Um, it's, it seems like a really good way to hedge against inflation. And they're really experienced operators. I'm not going to start like going and underwriting loans myself. But I think that there are, uh, it's like a way I'm interested in hedging my own real estate portfolio and staying in real estate, kind of. And, but it's just like another way to diversify across the spectrum of different ways to invest in real estate. I don't personally do any note investing, not, not because it's bad or good or, or anything like that. It's just not something I've gotten into yet. But we did have the author from Bigger Pockets who wrote the book on note investing on the show. It was, it was a while ago now, but if anybody's interested in learning a little bit more about note investing, you could check out that episode. It's actually an interesting... Yeah, Dave, Dave Van Horn. Dave Van Horn, yeah. There's an interesting like Super dynamic. knowledgeable guy. He knows a lot. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> It's this interesting, like I heard this ladder of real estate investing where becoming a note investor is like kind of, or like the lender, you're essentially a lender in that sense, is that is that's like the end goal for like being an investor. Like that's the optimal place to go. And, and as you go up towards that, it becomes, you're getting kind of more and more your rental properties or, fl- or flipping is like the lowest kind of rung on the ladder. And then you go up to rental properties, a little bit more passive. Then you go up to passive syndications. That's a little bit more passive. And then you get into note investing and it's like purely passive. You're just really just trading notes at that point. And it's a lot of people will say becoming the bank or note investing is like the echelon of being a real estate investor. That's interesting. I haven't heard it put that way, but it makes sense, right? Like the flipping is a lot of hustle. It's a lot of effort. And I guess over time you want to you just want to do less. Well, I, I hear a lot about it from the the creative financing standpoint of seller financing. People are like, I've owned and operated these for a while. Now I just I want to be the bank. I don't want to do anything and I'm still gonna get my money coming in every month. It's completely passive. It's that kind of like no demand. And then a lot of them, what they'll do is if they need a payday from seller financing, is they'll go sell their note that they have with the seller financing to a note investor and now they got bought out. And so yeah, that's just kind of the way that I've heard it explained, especially with creative financing. That's a good idea. I'm just starting to look into it, but that type of investing to me is, you know, sort of immune to economic cycles. Like, of course, notes become more risky in a recession. But, you know, if you have an experienced operator who knows how to rehabilitate loans or knows how to deal with that, I think that you can generate strong returns year round. And personally, I don't, you know, if you look at getting back to the data, like foreclosure data right now, like I don't think there's a risk of a foreclosure crisis even in this recession. So I, I don't see a lot of risk in, in note investing right now. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about when the moratoriums were ending that there was going to be a massive flow of evictions. And I mean, I don't follow the data as closely as you do, but I haven't personally seen that that kind of happening or I haven't seen any news stories or anything like that. No, it's just not going to happen. I mean, like if something else changes, of course, there could be a wave of foreclosures, but foreclosures keep dropping. You know, it's like the data is overwhelming that there is not really a risk of a foreclosure crisis, at least related to COVID-19. You know, like, sure, if there's like a huge job loss recession in the next six to 12 months, that could change. But 
based on the moratoriums, like it's something like 90% of people who exited the forbearance program did so in good standing. And I had a guy named Rick Sharga on our show recently who works for Adam Data and like is the foreclosure guy. And he was saying that a lot of the foreclosures that are coming online right now are ones that were from pre-pandemic. Like they were in bad standing. They sort of caught a break with the pandemic and got to go into for, in forbearance. And now they're just sort of like back to where they were pre-pandemic. And that's the majority of foreclosures. So it, again, it's not because of COVID. It's just the normal cycle that was happening in 2019 resuming. Yeah, you got to look at correlation versus causation there. Exactly. Well, David, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you, find more about your data, research, blog posts, your, even your podcast. Tell us where is the best place to connect with you? I host a podcast called On the Market. We have a bunch of experienced real estate investors. And we talk a lot about data and economic trends and basically try to keep people up to date on the housing market, uh, rates, trends that, are, that could be good opportunities for investors. So you can definitely check that out on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. I'm also, you know, I work for Bigger Pockets full time and my job is largely to do housing market analysis. So if you go to Bigger Pockets, you can read a lot of articles and studies I do for free. We also give away a lot of data for free um, if you want to check that out. And if you want to interact with me personally, the best place to do that is on Instagram where I'm at the data deli. I'll put a link to all your different resources, social media, blog posts, podcasts, everything in the show notes for anybody that's interested in connecting with you, David, or, or checking them out. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>